biggest dicks in history. Hey everybody and welcome to the biggest dicks in history. I am Dustin and I'm joined here with William. Yay. Yay. We're going to uh, talk about DX. So many decks. God, I love decks. I love talking about decks, honestly. I love when decks are all over my face. <laughs> <laughs> uh, today we're talking about dicks of industry. Would you yes. like to start us off with your dick? Yes. And um, yes, yeah, so, so the word dick is actually very uh potent to my person that i chose but i'll get to that uh near the end um but yeah so as you said dicks dicks of industry so basically someone who created or followed through in an industry and was a dick about it and because we chose that um i was actually turned on to a person from industrial history uh by the wonderful youtube channel regular car reviews um and their documentary the tale of the dale um, where Dale was an automobile, automobile, uh, <laughs> but basically I got turned on to this person by that. And after I learned the history of this particular, uh, individual, I was like, holy shit, this is my person. Um, when we decided to do dicks of industry. So I would like to introduce to you, Dustin, Geraldine, Elizabeth Carmichael. He's not a man. No. Uh, Geraldine Elizabeth uh, Carmichael is an absolutely amazing person when it comes to being a dick in industry. Uh, But it starts off not with her. It starts off with an old old gentleman with a dream. Uh, So in October of 1973, the Arab oil embargo happened and it crippled the U.S. supply of fuel for a while, uh, causing fuel supplies to run extremely low, fuel prices to skyrocket, and causing people to panic buy gas uh, as well as it affected the country's economy because it, it crippled a lot of what uh, our commerce commerce was based on in the 70s. You know, shit had to be transported everywhere. Um, at this point, the U.S. automakers uh, enjoyed near limitless gas for most cars. So cars had massive gas-guzzling monster engines. Um, you might have heard the terms like road boat, road yacht. Uh, I've also heard road brick or road house. Basically, you know, (laughs) big-ass Cadillacs, Mustangs. We had these, like, just massive, just asphalt-conquering angry beasts that just drank gas like a fucking Nordic god. (laughs) Roadhouse. Roadhouse. This caused the uh, U.S. auto industry to rethink uh, car designs and to aim for smaller, more efficient models, as well as allow for uh, allowed for an explosion of the import market, because most other countries already built smaller, more efficient cars just by the way they did things. Uh, America was really the big gas guzzler nation. So, what happens when you get an import market, Dustin? uh you you get a deportation um fallout <laughs> almost um basically uh all all the unpublicans got pissed off and didn't like that imports were running the auto market um so the us realized they needed to make smaller little fuel efficient cars um 
so that they would not get dominated by the import market in the U.S. Um, the U.S. automakers wanted to still have their share of the uh, U.S. market. Uh, and this turbulent time is who brought in the amazing Liz Carmichael. Um, she appeared out of nowhere. She's an engineer, an entrepreneur, six foot two, and had a man voice, and apparently was going to soon be the savior of the auto industry during these <laughs> during this crisis. My name is Liz. <laughs> um, so Liz Carmichael. At it, so the story begins here. Uh, as far as um, Liz's part, but there's still a little bit as to how Liz got here. But basically, uh, Liz Carmichael offered up an amazing futuristic three-wheeled car design called the Dale. Uh, this touted an astounding 70 miles per gallon and a price of at or even maybe less than $2,000. Uh, that's roughly 11500 today. So mm. not awful. I mean, even when I was looking at a Honda Fit, that was thirteen. So, yeah, um, this little yellow devil also boasted four seats, but to me, it looked kind of like a burping frog. Is that uh, a, have you, I don't remember, remember what it's called. I think it was the red Robin or something like that was a similar three wheeled car, very popular in Europe for a while, but it was notorious for tipping over. Um, yeah, so it is, it's similar to that. I actually have some pictures of it here to show you. Um, so that you can, uh, you can kind of see what the Dale looks like. Damn. Audio files, sound bites. Okay, so this is the ads piece. Yeah, open it in photos. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, this is the ads piece for the Dale, and this is where oh. the bur burping frog comes in. Okay, so here's where, here's the big difference is the, the, uh, uniwheel is in the back as opposed to the front yeah yeah um and that was supposed that comes into it later uh this is another picture of the uh i'm gonna put this in really big heavy quotes okay this is like size 5 font with uh size 24 quotes floor model oh okay it is on the floor it is on the floor and and there's a reason why it's a big quote floor model later and just for your viewing pleasure i got a picture of liz carmichael talking about the dale there and that, that can stay up so we can all all look at liz oh she's uh she's not a bad looking lady she you know what's funny is she she's not she was not a bad looking gal um but i'll go more into that later uh so now the dale automobile was really developed by a man named dale clift that's why it's called the dale uh, he was an, a part-time inventor who, at the time, worked for a U.S. electronics and military supplier. Uh, he wanted uh, the efficiency of riding his motorcycle, because he loved riding his motorcycle, um, but he wanted it to work without getting wet uh, when it had, like, rainy or foggy days. Uh, the result, he chopped the back half off of a motorcycle, and he welded it onto the front half of a small car frame design and put a shell over it, and, hey, it's a whale of a dale. <laughs> um now here's here's the sh the crazy shit it worked all right his dale worked and even managed to get it licensed in the state of california which being a californian um where i grew up i do have to say licensing anything that's not an off the the lot car in california is ridiculously hard hmm. but he got it licensed um 
Now, however, even though it worked, there were some obvious issues uh, with putting a Franken-cycle into a Franken-car, such as carbon monoxide leaks into the cab. Oh, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, that's fine, that's fine. (laughs) Undersized (laughs) tires, uh, an entire lack of collision protection, and the fact that it was was about the, the, the brakes it had were motorcycle brakes, not car brakes. So, no stopping power. Terribly safe. Terribly, terribly safe. The safest car in the world. Uh, Now, here is where Liz and Clift come together. So, Liz's dick has officially entered us, all right? Oh, I felt it. Yeah. Um, So, um, this is when Liz became aware of the Dale. So, she... There's no real information on when she first saw the Dale, but she somehow became aware of this vehicle. Uh, and she sent a business lackey, uh, out to Clift when he was out at a public restaurant dining with his wife. Uh, and, uh, Liz, uh, at this point says, Hey, um, I really want to, uh, redo the auto industry. And I think your little car right there can save us all during this field crisis. I'm assuming she said it like that, like a, (laughs) like a forties, uh, Barker, um, and she decided to grab the car design for her new company, 20th Century Motor Car Corporation. Hmm. Or to cut as I like to call it. TCMCC, yes, I'm very familiar. <laughs> and so she saw the uh, she saw the potential in the peppy little cruiser. Uh, Carmichael only really needed Clift to say yes to her promoting and selling the design of the Dale. So she basically bought the design of the Dale and offered him an astounding, groundbreaking $1,001 to start their partnership. That's not bad. Yeah. And so at this point, she doesn't seem like a dick because she offered him that money, but said there will be royalty payments for every unit sold. So his idea was he had millions of dollars you know, coming because this was going to be like a crazy well-selling vehicle. Um, so to get the train wreck rolling, Carmichael set up a shop in California and started advertising the Dale automobile as a coming storm, uh, promising the 70 miles per gallon efficiency, 88,000 units to sell in the first year of production and 250,000 units to sell in the next year of production. That's quite a promise. That's quite a promise. Uh, Carmichael even went so far as to claim, I'll rule the auto industry like a queen. (laughs) So, dick's out of the bag (laughs) at this point. This is like, she's very quickly going full bore. Look how fucking awesome I am. And at this point, she hasn't even done anything. Typical dick. Typical dick. Because that's what a dick does, right? You just, you, you, you walk in right into the auto market and you're like, look at my hard shaft. Everyone buy my little three-wheeled car. Yeah, it's like sending dick pics. You, you find the best lighting, the best angle, so you can misrepresent your dick. Yeah. I usually like to do the Frankenstein lighting on my dick. Like, I light it really, really heavy from the bottom, so all the shadows are on the top. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a... Uh... Uh, the Blair Witch Project with the flashlight under her face. Yeah. <laughs> My dick's even oozing something like her nose was. Ooh, nice. <laughs> it's moist. Okay, so uh, it's a bit crazy uh, that she made those um, proclamations uh, because even some of the largest auto manufacturers could only output a maximum uh, of a couple hundred thousand units per year when equipped facilities did really, really well. 
you know, these are these are like auto companies that have been around and they can barely push those numbers if they try. Um, so already things are getting to seem fishy. Uh, there was even a booklet sent out about the Dale before it was even being produced with the statements like and the, this is from the Dale six page booklet. Quote, designed and built like it's ready to be driven to the moon. You can't drive a car to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Dollar for dollar, the best car ever built. Dang. Even though it hasn't been built yet. And then my favorite, which, you know, we, we heard about Cliff's problems with the, the his D Dale, right? This is my favorite quote from her booklet. Rides like a rocket, yet it's built like a tank. Man. Bold statements. Yeah, really big, bold statements. Uh, this car was even advertised to have a cab built from space-aged resin and windows 70 times stronger than safety glass, as well as a ton of other ridiculous claims that, quite honestly, a little car with that design and the industry at that point just couldn't be done. Um, like, uh, she promised an entire integrated board, like all the controls would be on an integrated board, and oh, the air conditioner wouldn't have any moving parts. Which is physically impossible. It'd be like Knight Rider. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet I, Knight Rider, I barely know her. <laughs> uh, Carmichael rented a hangar in Burbank, California, uh, stating that it, this would be her initial manufacturing plant uh, and started rounding up in, uh, investors, conning people out of a whopping $33 million to start off and draining investors and potential customers out of even more money later when they started putting in orders for a car that didn't exist yet. Dang. This is how, this is how uh, kind of urgent it was for people to have vehicles like this. It's because you, know, you have this fuel crisis going on. Now, the, the Arab oil embargo only affected the U.S. for about five to seven months, like the hard part of it. But, it, you know, there was recovery time after that. Um, so, you know, a couple years of, you know, the auto industry still kind of rethinking itself, but, you know, to tell people that you're going to make this car with these bold claims and then just start taking their money up front. Yeah. Um, at this point, things are starting to heat up or at least appear to, but no one at all has taken time looking into Liz Carmichael's background or credibility, at least until interest in the vehicle grew enough to get attention of car and driver magazine. Which, if you've never heard of Car and Driver magazine, it is still around today. It is one of the biggest automotive-related magazines out there. And this is back in the 70s, and they were still huge. So they got the attention of Car and Driver magazine, who arranged a visit to the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation offices to get some close-up pictures of the Dale prototype. So they didn't send a full reporter team. They just sent a photographer to get, you know, photos. The offices but, is at the aforementioned hangar? No, this is the California business offices. Okay. Where the engineering and prototyping took place. Quote unquote. Gotcha. Now, here is where the dickishness of Liz starts to become apparent to the outside world. Uh, when car and drivers Mike Salisbury entered the offices and was shown the Dale prototype, he discovered what could be accurately described as a fake car. <laughs> it was basically just a frame with no steering wheel or gas pedal, a transmission with no drive shaft, 
What appeared to be a lack of any of the promised features or even many of the things that make a car function. In other words, the car, the cat was out of the bag. It was like someone came in, someone who was an automotive expert came in and was like, the fuck is this thing? Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine, like, just imagine, like, you, you are, like, th- this person's been t- touting this car and you have no reason to not believe them. It's surprising, but hey, maybe, you know, maybe this little company's thought of something that the bigwigs haven't. And you, as a photographer who knows what you're talking about and knows what you're looking at, go into these offices and you you're shown this thing (laughs) yeah that's pretty arrogant to invite a photographer that professionally photographs cars be like yeah this is a you know ride like rides like a rocket it's built like a tank you know totally functional it's space age cardboard we promise Tank, All right. Tank because of the first look into the Dale, investigators soon found that the showroom model of the Dale uh, didn't even have an axle. So the showroom model is different. This was one built for auto shows. Uh, the showroom model of the Dale didn't even have an axle, and the wheels were nailed on as the Burbank plant uh, was nailed on. And the Burbank plant was empty of any manufacturing materials, personnel, tooling, or equipment. Uh Continued investigations debunked the claims about Dale's potential speed, fuel economy, and safety as well. So people are starting to look into it, and they're like, um, fake. <laughs> fake really <knows>. fake. <laughs> I, I just just think about that. So so this, this person touted all this stuff and brought this person in, and then you know someone's like, well, let's go check out the factory, and there's just nothing in it. That's crazy. $33 million. But, and nothing's happened. Yeah, that's and insane. What's what's even crazier? So I I, I didn't include this in my thing, but I, I kind of read this uh, from some of the other accounts. The uh, so um, Salisbury when he went to take photos, apparently, um, according to him, Carmichael even set up a fake engineering squad. It was literally all dudes with glasses and white coats and clipboards writing things down and mumbling to each other, <laughs> looking at this fake ass fucking car. Oh, yes, the uh, carburetor sounds specifically uh, rainy today, yes. Yeah, it does, and the uh, the uh, the trans-differential bolt is, uh, it's too big, we need to find a smaller one, yes. <laughs> the, eco- the economy, you know? Yeah, how about that, that economy? <laughs> <laughs> um, when Cliff confronted Carmichael because he's still involved at this point because he's he's a design partner when Clift confronted Carmichael about her lies she cut ties and told him to leave 20th century motor offices like you meet she's like get the fuck out uh, even going so far as to call security at the empty fucking plant uh, and <laughs> tell them not to let, let Clift in the manufacturing hangar which is empty yeah. <laughs> she hired security for it though this yeah. empty ass fucking hangar which is sad that there were people working for this company, people not involved in the shenanigans, like nine to fivers were just also working with this bullshit. Hanging out. Yeah. Um, Clift felt so threatened by what she said and how he was treated when he tried to see the hangar uh, that he started carrying a gun for protection everywhere he went. Huh. So there's, there's no record of exactly what was said, but apparently... Enough was said that he felt like he needed a gun because this bitch was after him. 
Um, when the lid, uh, with the lid slowly coming off her box of secrets, Carmichael had to take action. Uh, by this point, Security and Exchange Commission of California and the California Corporation Division um, had placed multiple walls in Carmichael's plans, particularly the barring of doing business or selling stock in 20th century, <laughs> 20th century motor company. She wasn't, she literally was not allowed to do business at all. And she was not allowed to sell stock in her, uh, fake ass company. Well, that's the first piece of good news from this story. Yeah. Well, she kept doing it. It was just technically illegal. Uh, and because the company was incorporated in Nevada and only doing business in California, um, uh, the California case was sent to a U.S. district judge. So, you know, there, there, there became state split paperwork. So they had to send it to a district judge who had the authority to access all this paperwork and look into it. Now, here's the fun part about when you send a case to a U.S. district judge. That meant that Carmichael and her staff were then barred from all financial records regarding the company. Um, so, yeah, so basically they have all their financial records and they're not allowed. Uh, Carmichael and her staff were not allowed to manipulate or change anything after that. Hmm. Uh, so to buy time, she said, fuck it and moved operations to Dallas Tejas. Why is that? Um, I, I couldn't find information about why specifically Dallas, Texas. But I think it had something to do with maybe Texas had more liberal business pra practices or it could have even been just a, you know, as many miles in between you and the people after you kind of yeah, a thing. Sure. sure. Um, yeah. But but she said GTFO to California, uh, closed California offices. I don't know what she did with the hangar, but moved all operations to, to Dallas. And this seemed to help. Um, she began toting the car again, began pre-selling vehicles, doing all that. Uh, so it was helping, at least until an employee by the name of William D. Miller was found dead in his office with four gunshot wounds to the head. What? <laughs> now, Liz didn't do this, but it didn't help that both Miller and the, ma the main suspect of the murder, a man by the name of Jack Oliver, were both ex-convicts. Uh, because this brought attention back to 20th century... Because there was chemical uh, chem criminal investigations going on, resulting in Texas law enforcement going after Carmichael because they became aware that the Dale was a scam. In hearing the following uh, allegations, one of the 20th century engineers admitted that Dale wasn't really a working car at all. One of the engineers just kind of threw up their hands <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> it's all bullshit. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. Um, and the lid comes off all the way. So at this point, people are aware that she's committing fraud. They're aware this is all fake. They're, they're aware that the car is not at all real. She is everything's bogus. Liz Carmichael is indicted for conspiracy to commit uh, grand theft um, and goes full GTFO. Uh, now when officers went to investigate Liz's $100,000 mansion um, that she was renting, they found some truly interesting things. The most interesting of which being stuffed bras and multiple wigs. Oh, snap. I kind yeah, of, you want to hear the fun story of exactly who Liz Carmichael was? I had a feeling this story was going this way. <laughs> Liz Carmichael did, in fact, have um, five children. Okay. Okay. Um, there, there's some stuff below I'm going to get into, but basically Liz Carmichael always touted that she had five children and she was a widow. So she had five children from her husband who had died. 
however, Liz Carmichael was not a widow caring for her five children, but instead Liz Carmichael was the father of the five children. Yeah. That's right. The towering low voice, low voiced business bullshitter was actually born Jerry Dean Michael and because uh, and became Liz Carmichael later. Uh, and a woman commonly introduced as Liz's secretary, Vivian Barrett Michael, was actually Liz's wife. Huh. They were married through all of this. Okay. They had actually been married since the 50s. What the fuck? Yeah. They had been married since 1959, and Vivian and her children knew about uh, Liz's uh, intention for a sex change. This is right. Th- that's right. This wasn't just all an act. Uh, Liz Carmichael actually fully intended to to fully become a woman, uh, and uh, they knew about her identity as a woman, um, but as far as I can tell, they did not know about the fraud. Interesting. They just knew mommy or other mommy was, (laughs) you know, a business mogul. Now, I do have to give Liz Carmichael some credit. So Liz Carmichael was taking hormone therapy and actually had a sex change scheduled. So this wasn't part of her dickishness. I, I do have to say I am, you know, I, I am a, a supporter of, of human rights in, in any way. And I actually want to feel like saying, you know what, Liz, more power to you. Yeah, of course. Especially yeah. back then, that's, you'd have to be pretty brave to, I mean, it's not like it was, um, she was putting that out there into the world, like, look what I'm doing, but, but it's still still a very brave thing of her back in the 1970s to do that yeah in yeah especially the early 70s and and what's uh uh what's actually kind of awesome uh, again this is a horrible person but what's actually kind of awesome is uh she did in fact win the right to be tried as a woman uh in a court of law so nice. um she was she was who she was so i i gotta give you know more more power to you on that front liz uh you're a business dick but <laughs> more power to your human rights uh, advocacy. Um, so uh, Carmichael was eventually found by federal agents working in a flower shop under the name Susan Rains. Uh, when captured, she was trying to climb out through the window of her rented home in a bright pink pantsuit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to so many different sources. Like I, I, I did get a good portion of this from uh, regular car reviews documentary. Um, but I, I was looking up other sources and they had the same information. So again, good on regular car reviews for having such thorough investigation. Um, but every site I went to where they talked about her capture mentioned the bright pink pantsuit. Apparently it was a big deal. Nice. I love it. Yeah. Uh, she was extradited to Los Angeles where she faced multiple charges, including stock fraud and, uh, her baffle she bafflingly, uh, made the decision to defend herself in court. She refused counsel. And then the rest of her bizarre story comes to light. So here's just a, here's just a few bullet points that I'm going to end on that show exactly how crazy, besides the fact that she was frauding people out of millions of fucking dollars, making fake-ass cars, and essentially being pretending to be someone else. I mean, you know... She, she was still fraudulent in her identity with Susan Raines, and uh, there was actually multiple aliases in between um, those. I just didn't feel like writing all of them down. Um, one of her California-based 20th Century Motor employees had ties to organized crime. Okay. So that's cool. That is cool. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, Liz Carmichael ran 20th Century Motor Corporation as a cash-only business, which is shady considering the amounts of money they were working with. Yeah, that's shady as fuck. $33 million in invested? In liquid fucking cash, yeah. Um, she never attended... So she had claimed... Uh, to be a graduate of OSU, which when they looked, there was never any uh, attendance records of a Liz Carmichael, any of her other aliases, or uh, Jerry Dean Michael. So she never went to OSU. Hmm. Uh, she had claimed to be an Indiana farm girl, a businesswoman from the University of Miami, and an ex-racing driver, and a windowed mother of five, whose NASA engineer husband died in 1966. Those were all big, bold claims that she made and stuck to. Um, there's no record of her ever having a husband, <laughs> considering <laughs> she was married since 1959. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, she was already on the run as Jerry Dean Michael for counterfeiting and skipping bail. Wait, did, did she actually have five kids? Yeah. The five kids were real. The, the five kids she fathered with her wife. Vivian. Oh, oh, those are actually her five kids. Okay, I get it. I get it. Yeah, it's just so when her wife would come around and people were like, "Oh, who's this?" She's like, "Oh, this is my secretary, Vivian." But that was actually her wife, who knew, uh, knew about her her uh, identity change and everything. So okay, again, I, I don't think the wife knew about the fraud, but she knew about her 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 uh, life as um, Liz Carmichael instead of you know Jerry Dean. Um, there were even some allega allegations of real estate fraud. So it uh, looks like uh, little Liz there has got her fingers in a lot of little uh, fraud pies. <laughs> and she allegedly hired a hitman during the trial to kill the prosecutor and the reporters that originally opened up the Dale suspicion. Yeah, because they can't tie that back to her. Jesus. No. Um, but that failed and they didn't tie it back to her. Uh, just everyone was super sure she did it. Yeah. Um, but the, the hitman failed. He didn't kill anybody. Didn't even hurt anybody. He took a shot at somebody in a cafe, uh, but didn't, didn't kill anybody. Um, yeah. And, uh, during the trial, she was claiming that she was being unfairly prosecuted because she really did want to get the Dale up and going and <laughs> no one, no one indicted, you know, Gerald or no, no one indi indicted Ford of, uh, you know, getting all that money before he started producing cars, even though he bought a plant and material and workers yeah. and, and designs and, you know, you know, totally, totally the same case. And here comes the point where she got to actually put dick badges on her her coat of arms. Uh, in 1977, she was found guilty of 27 offenses in total. That's a lot. Yeah. Oh, and just as a side note, Dale Cliff's $1,001 check did clear, but the $2,000 check he got later bounced. And his <laughs> millions uh, of dollars in promised royalties haven't surfaced yet. So yeah, Should have demanded cash. Yeah, should have demanded cash. <laughs> so, um, a lot like my Pornhub search history, that is the story of my lady dick. Oh, I like that. Would you care to elaborate? Uh, you just go on Pornhub and you type in Lady Dick. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> it searches itself, bro. Um, yeah, I will say she's pretty dickish. And uh, the dick I'm going to be talking about is Phineas Taylor Barnum, better known as P.T. Barnum, 
And one thing I have to say about uh, Liz Carmichael versus P.T. Barnum is P.T. Barnum did exploit people and take advantage of people, but he did it in a pretty honest way. The people he exploited, you know, he still paid and paid pretty handsomely, to be honest. So we, so we both have, both of our dicks have something going with them. Ours was a pioneer of human rights and yours is a pioneer of paying out for the squelching of human rights. Something like that. <laughs> was, I, I know a bit about PT, but I, I, I don't, I never actually researched him. So I'm super excited to hear what you have. Yeah. It was a different time for sure. I mean, it was the early 1800s. So, uh, slavery had yet to be abolished. And that comes into play quite a bit. But I'll start at the beginning. Uh, Phineas Taylor Barnum was born in Bethel, Connecticut, July 5th, 1810. So happy belated birthday, PT. Uh, He was the sixth of ten children. Jesus Christ. Yeah. At 15 years old, his father passed away. And he took all of his money and opened a general store outside of Bethel. He sold cakes, beer, cookies, and raisins. (laughs) <laughs> the, <laughs> the four essential food groups yeah but did he sell i mean did, did he he sell any of the wonka bars that had the golden ticket none of that oh uh, shit just seriously the four until he uh he started taking trips to new york city to buy other stuff to sell at his store such as pocket knives combs and oysters uh cool cool <laughs> and gross <laughs> It's a little bit of a trip for oysters. I'm just saying this. A little bit, a little bit. Connecticut. Or, yeah, Connecticut to New York. Anyway, um, at 19 years old, he started a lottery at his store. Uh, Political and religious leaders of the community decided they didn't like this. They didn't like the idea of having a lottery, so they campaigned to make lotteries illegal in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And this persuaded Barnum to buy a press and start his own publication called the Herald of Freedom. (laughs) Uh, And he used this paper to attack the people that were against the lottery. He sounds just like a wicked rebel at this point. Like he just is greasing his hair back and wearing a leather jacket (laughs) and flipping on Switchblade every time you disagree with him. Well, you don't like me making money? Well, I'm going to start a newspaper and I'm going to talk about you. And that's what he did. That's literally what he did. I'll use the word flabbergast. I'll do it. <laughs> Don't tempt me. <laughs> um, yeah, so because of that paper, he, he was accused of libel three times. He was thrown in jail twice. And one of those times, he was in jail for 60 days. Ooh, wow. A two-month stint. Yeah, I can only imagine what the Herald of Freedom had to say about his incarceration. Innocent, he was flabbergasted. <laughs> innocent savant imprisoned for providing for his community. Beers and cakes and raisins slowly going foul. <laughs> uh, unfortunately for Barnum, the religious leaders won and lotteries were made illegal in Connecticut. Aww. Shortly after that, um, PT moved to New York with his wife and daughter and opened a grocery store and has a side business in show business, uh, booking and running minstrel shows and plays. Are you familiar with minstrel shows? Um, is, that's when you, you tuck behind and lean over, right? That's a minstrel show? <laughs> N- not to my knowledge, my understanding. <laughs> and uh, uh, 
it enlightened me. What is a minstrel? Minstrel. Show? So uh, when I first heard it, I was like, that sounds fucking gross. But it's uh, M I N S T R E L, minstrel. Uh, minstrel shows were shows featuring white actors in blackface, pretty much making fun of African Americans. Oh, well, okay, different time. Yeah, I it guess. was a different time. It was a dark time. It is wholly uh, inappropriate now. But <laughs> yeah, I guess it, I guess it flew then. You know, you know what's funny is even before I even knew, because I, I grew up in, in kind of like a, uh, a melting pot neighborhood, so we had a little bit of everything. And as a kid, I really just did not notice the difference between people. But as I got older and I saw, I think it wasn't the jazz singer. I forgot what my first movie I was exposed to that had blackface in it. And seeing it, I was offended by it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I had no idea what it was. I had never seen it before but just seeing it i was like what the hell is this this is kind of pissing me off <laughs> yeah especially back then the way that they did it was very very offensive yeah for anyone who doesn't understand uh blackface uh and the way it was because there are some movies where white actors were done with appropriate makeup and it looked pretty convincing but originally blackface they super exaggerated the lips made them very very yeah. either super dark or super bright and the faces were like shoe polished dark and they usually made eyes look puffy cheeks look bigger um it was yeah it just incredibly racist yeah and uh i'll, I'll come back to that later it gets those shows get kind of silly but i'll come back to that um <laughs> He was also writing advertisements for nearby theaters, um, but he had higher aspirations. So he used his time to scout talent as he was doing this side business, show business stuff. In 1835, he learned of Joyce Heth. Have you heard of Joyce Heth? Um, only if I sneeze real hard. <laughs> she was 161 years old. She was George Washington's slave childhood nurse, and she was currently on display in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Masonic Hall. <laughs> Wait, the Masonic Hall had a person on display? Yep. Oh, uh, great. <laughs> <laughs> but the showrunner wanted to get out of show business and uh, wanted to sell the rights to display her because he was tired of show business. You know how it goes. <laughs> um pt barnum was skeptical about a 161 year old woman but he went to philadelphia anyway to meet her and her owner in his words she looked like a living mummy she, <laughs> she was very wrinkled she had no teeth and she was blind and as she had one arm and both legs were paralyzed she weighed 50 pounds what? How was she alive? It's a mystery. It's a oh, mystery. That poor, that poor woman. <laughs> Jeez. Um, and so while she's on display, she told altered stories about little George, uh, referring to George Washington, and also sang Baptist hymns. I mean, the Baptist hymns I could totally go for, because, I mean, those are just... Those just sound good. Yeah. You just you picture know, you have a little old lady singing you Baptist hymns. You're just like, oh, I just want a cup of cocoa and like a homemade pie. And I just want to sit and like, yeah. talk about your bridge group. 161 year old singing Baptist hymns. And Jesus was there. Don't worry. She'll, she'll tire herself out. 
Uh, PT agreed to buy the rights to Joyce Heff as long as the showrunner could provide proof of her age. And he provided a bill of sale for Joyce, dated 1727, stating that George Washington's father sold, quote, one Negro woman named Joyce Heff, age 54 years, for 33 pounds. Huh. Yeah. Could you uh, just imagine that? Like, it's such an unthinkable thing that you're receiving a copy of a receipt for a person. Yeah. Like, was there, was there a Carfax that he could have wrote, <laughs> wrote it to for Joyce Heff? Oh, yeah. Like, this, this is such sure? a disgusting idea that you're buying the rights to a person. It's yeah. just awful. Like, I, I want to be offended by P.T. Barnum and call him a dick for having done that, but that's just where history was. So I could be offended by history, but I don't right. know if I could be offended by him in particular. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's it, a slippery slope. I, I, I know it's not, I, I can't really talk about it. <laughs> it gets worse. It gets worse. Uh, oh God. <laughs> uh, PT said, quote, the evidence seems authentic. He actually, he, he did say that, but he knew it wasn't authentic, but he recognized that the public had already been falling for it. So he went through with a deal for $1,000. He b- bought the rights to Joyce Heth. Ooh, man, did you do the conversion? So $1,000 back then is approximately $26,000 today. Jeez. So, oh my God. Well, I mean, talk about, you know, seeing something you you think there might be a profit in. Jesus Christ, yeah. $26,000 for a maybe. Like, that's a big maybe. <laughs> and the showrunner originally wanted $3,000, um, but... PT talked him down to 1000 And that was all of his money. That was all the money that he had that he spent buying this woman, Joyce Heth. It's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> and he had a wife and a daughter to take care of, but no, he was going to buy this human being and put her on display. Uh, so he brought Heth to New York and contracted her on Broadway at, at Niblo's Garden. He got her a new dress, <laughs> and he had her drawn for a new poster to display outside. Um, he also screamed ads on the street in front of the venue. So instead of um, hiring people or, you know, traditional, he did have a poster, but sort of traditional methods of advertising, he stood outside the venue and screamed, not like at people walking by, but you know, screamed advertising about Joyce Heth and come into this theater and see this 161 year old lady. Hey, can I, can I do a, Can I do a reenactment of what that might sound Absolutely. like? Absolutely. Come see Joyce, this really old lady. <laughs> I'm assuming it was something like that. She's so wrinkled. It's disgusting. I got her a new dress. <laughs> Because he's gonna, I mean, he spent money on it. He's gonna talk. About oh it. yeah, let's just face it. Um, and actually, he one of most notably the thing that one of the things that he was shouting was quote unquote the first person to put clothes on the unconscious infant who was destined to lead our heroic fathers to glory, victory, freedom. Hmm. Um, and he said he did that to get women to buy tickets. Because he was mentioning a baby. He thought women would want to see that if you mentioned a baby. Oh. 
come look at the baby. <laughs> uh, this is where his advertising skills really kick in. He convinced the local papers to write puff pieces in exchange for uh, PT buying ads in their papers. Oh. So he invites them to a sort of pre-opening event where Joyce really charms the reporters. Uh, and the, uh, the papers report the event and promote the shit out of it because they believed every word that Joyce was saying. So people are lined up to see the show. Um, and some people asked Joyce questions. Some people felt her wrinkles or stroked her hair. Some people wanted to shake her hand because it was the hand that like bathed and took care of George Washington. And some people even felt her pulse. <laughs> Just in case she's one of them robots yeah. that we hear so much about. And the <laughs> pretty much it, it, it goes there it gets worse <laughs> um pt gave her tons of whiskey which probably explains why she was so amicable amicable to people touching her and petting her i guess you get me on whiskey i'm like leave her alone it's time for me to play the witcher Fine. go sleep with all the elves i've never even heard of george washington leave me alone see the guy on the nickel <laughs> Um, she was on display for eight hours a day, six days a week. Oh. And P.T. Barnum made roughly $40,000 a week in today's money from Joyce Heth. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, during this time, a prominent surgeon approached PT about doing the autopsy for Joyce once she passes. Yeah, quote unquote, when she passes. Yeah. And uh, at the time, he didn't think much about it because she was his cash cow. So he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, whatever. Um, he decided to take the show on the road, but was quickly thwarted by, can you guess who? It's not a specific person. It's a group of people or uh, an idea. The Power Rangers. <laughs> Abolitionists. Oh, those uh, rabble rousers. Those mangy mutts. Um, yeah. So preachers started telling the public that it's immoral to pay money to view a slave. Um, and P.T. Barnum said, quote, my attendance fell off. The priest ridden people came no more. So he told the Providence Journal that he was an uh, abolitionist himself and that Joyce was a free woman touring to raise money in order to free her great-great-grandchildren out of bondage. And it worked. Oh, my God. Preachers oh, urged their flocks to see Joyce Heth. Oh. And she backed P.T.'s story. Oh, God. That is... Okay. Uh, right there. Liz has been blown out of the water. Uh, this is just that to claim you're an abolitionist and to make more money off of your slave. Yeah. From dumb religious people. That oh my god, he just wins. I'm sorry, he just wins. He's the biggest. He's the biggest dick. That's uh, yeah. When I was when I was doing research on PTA, I was like. This guy is just fascinating. Like, I could watch documentaries on him all day. Like, he's, he's, he's a shithead, but he's immensely fascinating. Um, one minister handed P.T. a $10 bill 
to help liberate Joyce's family. <laughs> PT said, quote, that night, me and friends spent it on champagne and oysters. <laughs> hey, well, I mean, he's been shipping in those oysters, so. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's got to buy from his own stock, but, you know. It's well worth it. Um, <laughs> as crowds died down, he wrote to local papers anonymously attacking his own exhibit as a hoax. This is another part of his ingenious advertising. Um, he wrote to these papers saying that Joyce Heth is not a human being, claiming that she was an automaton made of whalebone, India rubber, and numberless springs. Hmm. Just like Difference Engine, for anyone who's read that book. I have not. Oh, there was a, a tea-serving a, a tea robot made out of whalebone and innumerous springs. Nice. So look at that. PT. Thinking ahead. <laughs> way, way ahead of his time, but also way behind the times. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now that people have already seen her, go back to see her again, because now they think they've been bamboozled by this man and whalebones and springs. Um, he does this again and again, touring the exhibit, taking it around the country. Uh, when in the second season of the tour, Joyce suddenly died. Aw. And PT... Well, she was like 170 years old at that point, right? She she was 162. Oh, jeez. Um, and PT said, quote, The old woman had kicked the bucket. I could humbug the world no longer. And back then, humbug meant fool the world, basically. Yeah. So now he goes back to the surgeon that wanted to do the autopsy uh, to get money for a public autopsy which he sold out a theater on Broadway for and charged 50 cents uh, for people to view this autopsy. 1,500 people paid for entry. And during this autopsy, the doctor was looking for ossification, which is the hardening of the internal organs, which is a sign of a very elderly person. And the doctor finished the autopsy and determined that she was in her 80s at the latest. Wow. So it was all, it was all fake. <laughs> there wasn't a woman that was 161 back in the 1800s. <laughs> so at this point, um, the Sun was a newspaper, and it was the only newspaper that covered the autopsy. So PT went to a rival newspaper, The Herald, and told the editor that the autopsy was a sham and Joyce Heth was still alive. <laughs> the, and uh, he told the paper the doctor had dissected a recently deceased local woman named Aunt Nellie. And uh, PT said, quote, I'd at last found my true vocation. Uh the fact um, that he admits to these things, too, is just awful. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And that, that leads me to my next point. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Uh, he wrote several editions of his own autobiography. He wrote and rewrote it several times with conflicting details so that people would have to buy it again. And uh, compare and you know, see what he was lying about. Are you sure he wasn't a Batman villain? <laughs> In 
he might as well have been and again i'm only scratching the surface of pt barnum this is this is before he did some crazy shit and don't get me wrong this is some crazy shit but yeah i want to do another episode about him for sure at some point well we'll see for uh episode five the solo dick contest to see if he wins so yeah. one more round of contenders but he's looking pretty good so far and uh a fun fact about his autobiography at the time the only book that was printed more than pt barnum's autobiography was the holy bible yeah uh, wait wait king's king king james version <sighs> I'm okay ass- i'm assuming so i don't I, i'm not a big bible aficionado oh, okay i mean mine was a <laughs> new life and word so you know <laughs> sure yeah <laughs> I always wanted one of those paperback Bibles that just said Bible on it. <laughs> I, ha- I had one. It was like a cartoon Bible when I was a kid. I wish I still had it because that thing was silly. <laughs> <laughs> was Jesus like smiling, hanging from the cross? Like, I'll be back, kids. Yeah. Don't worry about me. I'm just, you know, paying for your salvation. No big deal. No bigs, bro. So that's my little spiel about P.T. Barnum, a brief introduction into his shenanigans back in the 1800s. That is absolutely fascinating. I I do have to say, um, I mean, just just immediately, just this whole highlight um, of him buying a woman to basically sell her identity over and over and over again. And then he even sold her death is the most fascinatingly disgusting thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Yeah, it's... I had a lot of fun doing research for P.T. Barnum, for sure. Oh, man. And to be to be so charismatic about it, too, I think is the worst part. Because he he wasn't just, like... You know, it's like it's not like he was sitting behind, you know, like when, when the doors close, he like turns into someone else. He's like, yeah, I got their money. He's like, he's probably still P.T. Barnum behind the doors. He's just like, ha ha, yeah. I have your money now. Yeah. Let's buy champagne and oysters with this dead woman's $10. <laughs> I would love to hear quotes from him, what he has to say when no one's around, you know, like the stuff that publications don't want to publish back then and today, you know? Yeah. There's definitely definitely some really harsh racially centered words that he said. He, he I bet you that I'm I'm sorry, PT Barnum and just the personality that you've you've let us see in him so far. This is the kind of guy that talks to his dick in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. How you doing, <laughs> big fella? Yeah. This is the kind of guy who he's just jacking off. He's like, "Yeah, you're the greatest. <laughs> you're so good at this." Like that's 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 PT fucking Barnum. <laughs> uh yeah well well thanks everybody for listening yeah thank you all for uh listening about a lady dick and a a dick to ladies the i mean i think pt was the bigger dick oh yeah uh pt barnum is somehow stuffing a horse cock in there (laughs) He, he's something else. He's out of this world. Yeah. No, but I completely agree with you that P.T. Barnum is the bigger dick in this situation. Uh, P.T. Barnum is somehow stuffing a horse cock down one of his legs and walking around fucking tripod. I mean, Liz Carmichael 
was, I mean, like five inches hard, <laughs> more, more of a dick for like being a swindler, but it, there's a huge difference between swindling people with a fake car and swindling people out of literally their life. Yeah. It, it is crazy how, how much Joyce Seth went along with, which I mean, back then she didn't really have a choice, you know, especially being paralyzed like she can't run away <laughs> yeah i guess but that even puts her in the mo- at the boldest uh you know situation in her life they she could have just you know told everyone to fuck off and like what are they gonna do kill her she's already you know fucking 160 years old yeah i can't feel my anything fuck you <laughs> you want to touch my hair go touch your own hair you piece of shit you're a dick pt and thank you also, everyone, uh, for sending us any emails or questions or uh, info you have to biggestdickspodcast at gmail.com or hitting us up uh, via Anchor or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Also, uh, follow us on Ship on Fire. You can find our Facebook at facebook.com slash ship on fire. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Goodbye. And send us your boobs. Oh, right. Send us your boobs. Even if they're Liz Carmichael boobs. Yeah, I'll, I'll look at Liz's boobs. <laughs> Biggest dicks in history.